you know, even though we say, oh, there's so many pigeons, there's so many rats that are all over the place, we forget that those are only just two of, of um, you know, hundreds of species that might be observed in a given city. You are listening to Welcome back to the Urban Wildlife Podcast. We're here with one of your usual co-hosts, me, Billy Brown, and Tony Crowsdale. And joining us is LJ Brubaker. If you do like our podcast, please rate it highly on your podcast listening app of choice. Please also feel free to get in touch with us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. Tweet at us at urbwildlifecast. Find us on Facebook. All great ways to get in touch. And if you feel inclined to help chip in for the cost of the podcast, remember that you can do that at www.patreon.com slash urbanwildlifecast. And for those who've donated already, we thank you very much. And don't worry, the new equipment will be shortly. Uh, we will be getting new mics, a new recorder, a new computer, and some sound treatments for the studio. Which is Tony's new basement. Yes. Okay. <laughs> this is in our, our Studio A right now where we're sitting, which is Billy's dining room. LJ, where do you work? So I work at Bartram's Garden, which is, uh, we like to call it America's first botanical garden. It was founded in the 1720s by a Quaker man named John Bartram, who went on to become one of the most prominent botanists in early America. And it is still alive and well as a nature institution and a cultural institution here in beautiful southwest Philadelphia. Yeah, we go there a lot. It's one of our like default parks as a family. It's phenomenal. I mean, I'd say for how small it is, you know, like what's 40 acres? So, yeah, it's about 40 acres at this point. It's pretty, you got a little wetland, you got a significant river frontage, you got a meadow, some mm-hmm. nice woods. So... I already mentioned the wetland. I forget, it, yeah. Which is... Mention it again. Sure. There's little... Yeah. <laughs> the wetland happens to be the last existing wetland on the lower tidal Schuylkill. Hill. So we've gone through a lot oh. to restore that habitat. And uh, part of what we're still working on is bringing back freshwater mussels to that yeah. area. It's, it's made a lot of progress in the past several years. We're very excited. I think you almost undersold it. So if you're into the history of North American science and biology, the Bartrams were early plant collectors, um, sold, like sort of built a business selling North American plants back to Europe. Yes. But also ended up being like the naturalists helping every other scientist who visited North America. Um, Like I've been studying up on the life of Alexander Wilson, father of North American ornithology, and just seeing how pivotal the Bartrams were in his work, and it keeps happening. You read about somebody, and the Bartrams are there. Yeah, throughout the generations, not just John Bartram initially, but also uh, his son William, who was renowned as a traveler. Uh, John and William, and then later William on his own, went up and down the East Coast and then out west toward the Mississippi on plant documentation and gathering missions, um, described a ton of species that were as yet not described. Uh, And then through the transatlantic plant trade, uh, they transformed the landscapes of the gardens of Europe at the time. Um, And then later, John Bartram's granddaughter, Anne Bartram Carr, ran the garden for a while. And during her time, they really ramped up their commercial trade. Um, So if you're interested in Victorian era 
ornamental gardens. We most recently restored um, the garden in front of the house, uh, the Ann Bartram car garden that has a lot of sort of the plants that she would have had at the time. Looks gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. And isn't like the the oldest ginkgo in North America there. Yes. And <laughs> daffodils that are like, date back to the 1700s. Yeah. Um, the LJ and I were corresponding <laughs> about ginkgos before. So, so go ahead, LJ. Talk about ginkgos. Yeah. Um, so ginkgos are incredible for lots of reasons that you can look up. Um, but the ginkgo at Bartram's is especially so because it is the oldest living ginkgo in North America. Ginkgos, of course, used to exist in North America before it was North America, like millions of years ago. <laughs> uh, but anymore, they are only endemic to a small pocket of Eastern Asia. Um, they really weren't introduced to Europe and the Americas until the late 1700s. So the tree at Bartram's it was a gift to John Bartram that was given to both him and then uh, Hamilton over at the Woodlands received two. So that's not that's not Alexander. No, that's that a different been... Hamilton who owns uh, a property that's now a cemetery, but also historic. Yes, spot. don't yeah. let the Woodlands know that I forgot who their Hamilton was. Um, <laughs> the one at Bartram still exists. It's beautiful. The sapling was received in 1785. It was already a couple years old at that point, so it's at least that old. Um, unfortunately, the ones at the Woodlands, there were two. The story is that in the 1980s, they had a gardener who was tired of his dog getting sick, eating the um, seeds that fell off the ginkgo, so he chopped both of them down. <laughs> Sorry. And, um... <laughs> If, if people haven't dealt with ginkgos, the females, um, their pungent fruit is unbelievably pungent, and like in Philly, they call them puke ball trees. It smells like dog crap. I believe the story was that it was a mistake. There were supposed to be males, but you can't sexually identify the tree until they're like 20 years old. They generally won't start fruiting until they're 20, 25. Also, ginkgos do have the ability to change their sex if... There are a ton of males. Um, sometimes uh, one will turn into a female and start fruiting. Technically not fruit. They are gymnosperms. So good point. Yep. swollen. Yeah. Right, because uh, there's no endo. It's a naked whatever. seed, so therefore right. it can't be a fruit. Can't be fruit, but boy, howdy, that doesn't stop it from smelling and rotting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so your sidewalk will be slick with this like puke-smelling slime. Well, yeah. here, here's the deal: is uh, for years when I was part of our five productions and our early days what was our five productions this uh, music promotion company philadelphia still exists to this day um mostly based at a uh, legal venues but this is when we're had a makeshift venue at the basement of a unitarian church and there was this stairwell that we would have to be loading all the bands would load through and we would look before the eventually got so prolific the the, the pa system was was kept there in a closet that we would set it up every night. But before we had to load it, this giant PA system, down the stairs every time there was a show. And in the fall, we'd have to slide our way down the stairs in this mat of ginkgo seeds. <laughs> and you just smell horrible and you're slipping and... 
you're tracking it all into the church. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. If you can overcome the gross outsides, the <laughs> seeds themselves are a great snack. It's very popular in Korea and Japan. If you uh, kind of strip off all the gross outside and then pan roast the seeds themselves, okay. they kind of crack open and it's like a jewel green berry looking kind of fruit mm. they're incredible uh i like it with like a little bit of seaweed and salt on them mm. can't eat too many of them they will cause gastrointestinal distress but they're worth trying mm. <laughs> <laughs> well something some way to screw over a guest sometime if you really don't like them well, here's some more yeah. um it just reminds me of yeah. in brazil they have the the Paraná pines is um i think it's atacaria brazilensis or or uh Paranaz. Yeah. So Paranaz is the southern state of Brazil, and there's a a, a monkey puzzle tree yeah. um, species that lives there, and it has seeds like nuts. You know, they're not nut. I mean, it's a seed from the sure. cones. Yeah. But um, again, it's a and that's another like ancient lineage of yeah. gymnosperm that used to live in North America. The petrified forest is is uh. Araucaria trunks, I believe, and and they have these delicious nuts that you eat as well and on the side of the, of the road you can buy them and stuff it's so. do they also cause gastrointestinal distress I don't know them? but it's uh, it just reminded me of that of of delicious gym we say the same thing about prunes there you go so yeah alright um, so the reason we invited LJ here was not because of how awesome Bartram's garden is which it is but because you were going on about bees Yes. And so the hook here is that um, in a second, we're going to listen to an interview with Dr. Misha Leong talking about a, a paper or research project about biotic homogenization in cities. Dr. Leong also is into, into studying bee diversity. And so that's what we were corresponding about. What do you like about bees? I think I have to pull back a little bit. If I'm being picky, I might prefer wasps to bees. Yeah. Well, um, bees, I mean, it's a paraphletic group. Right. Bees are wasps. Exactly. Yeah. So Hymenoptera writ large, I'm a big fan. <laughs> I think they are incredibly fascinating, both as social insects with complex hierarchies and social functions that we still don't understand, though we've been studying them for a long time. But also, the social species in Hymenoptera are just a drop in the bucket compared to the vast diversity of solitary species, which serve all of these kind of unsung roles in the ecosystem, um, especially parasitoid wasps, uh, major check on all sorts of different insect populations, Uh, solitary bees that pollinate all sorts of native plants that form the basis of any native ecosystem. Uh, They're they're beautiful, and I feel like I have to um, be enthusiastic about them because... Be enthusiastic. Yeah, i got to be enthusiastic about them because I find that in the U.S., if you know about bees, you know about honeybees, and you might know about bumblebees. Honeybees yeah. are not native to the U.S. They are a European species, Apis mellifera, and they, I'm going to take a hard line stance, say it, they don't belong here. Uh, go back to Europe, bees. <laughs> and I find that we focus so hard on um, honeybees culturally um, in the Save the Bees rhetoric that we yeah. kind of lose sight of all of our 
incredible native bee species who are drastically declining in numbers yep. um, for similar reasons to honeybees, but also for reasons we may not know about because no one's studying them. Yeah. Well, some people are studying them, but not enough. Not enough, yes. Yeah. So I take a hard line, a reactionary stance perhaps in being very radically pro-bee, pro-wasp, pro-ant, uh, native especially, um, to just kind of remind people that, or inform people for the first time, that these are creatures that exist. There are thousands of species of them that are endemic to our regions. Yeah. Uh, they are fundamental to the healthy functioning of our ecosystems, and without native bees and wasps, uh, I think the world would not look very good. As At least our neighborhood wouldn't look very good. Our country yeah. wouldn't. Societal collapse, perhaps. I'll say they're a lot of fun to watch. They like, are. We, uh, you know, first, I'll refer people to a couple of the episodes we had um, in the past year. So look back on the website or the podcast list, you'll find them. Um, but I've had a lot of, I, I've, I've stumbled on a lot of fun little bee, or sorry, a lot of actually wasp, like drama. Mm-hmm. Like I was with Ken Frank, who wrote one of our favorite books, The Ecology of Center City, Philadelphia. And we were down, what's the name of the cafe um, by Boathouse Row? Or at the base of the... Uh, I mean, I know it's Lloyd Hall, but I forget what they call, the cafe is called. It's the just... building's Lloyd Hall. Okay, at Lloyd Hall, Ken took me there. We're going to look at, at bridge spiders. And so there's a lot of bridge spiders there, which is this cosmopolitan spider species. Mm-hmm. And we're sitting there watching this bridge spider. And then we see, I think it was a little mud dauber. Yeah. Wasp flying along. And then we're watching it, and it's like inspecting the webs as it goes under these eaves. And then all of a sudden, we see like a bridge spider just drop. So I guess it's, it sends the wasp coming. And the wasp hawked it out of the air like it flew down and grabbed it and flew off with it that's one of my dramas I like to talk about and the other one is like we have uh we have we grow i have milkweed that grow out of the downspout container garden out front they get covered in these aphids called oleander aphids which are exotic themselves um but then there's this little parasitoid wasp that you wait like you basically wait a few weeks and the, the aphids start turning brown and inflating like little paper bags mm-hmm. um and then you see him with a little like hole cut in the back of them, and you see these little black wasps like cruising around, and they're just like laying eggs that develop inside each one of the aphids and sort of kill them. Um, it's incredibly satisfying to watch your pests get eaten alive from the inside by parasitoid wasps. Absolutely, it's pretty punk, honestly. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm a big fan of the tarantula hawk, <laughs> and there's a band. Called tra- I mean, there was a band called Tarantula Hawk. I don't know. I think it might have members of Dystopia or Logical Nonsense or something. It was uh, some a band from the Southwest, like yeah. stoner, rocky kind of band called Tarantula Hawk. I never know enough to contest Tony's knowledge of of any rock genre. You can get really, really hyper specific with genres of music, <laughs> genres of punk, especially. <laughs> we do. Yeah. yeah. All right. So um, I'll set up the article a little bit. So this is something. Recommended to us by another bee guy, Doug Sponsler, who is an entomologist out of Penn State who's studying bee populations and bee ecology here in Philadelphia. He's who we featured on a couple of those episodes. And uh, he sent us this paper. He warned us, and we should also say, just as, as, a, just as a heads up, um, this is a preprint. Uh, we still think it's worth talking about. Um, but it's called A Citizen Science Approach to Evaluating U.S. Cities for Biotic Homogenization. Um, we'll hear about that soon. Two things got us excited about it. A, just it's talking about biodiversity in cities, which is like a favorite topic, but it's also using data from the City Nature Challenge. 
specifically using data from iNaturalist collected during City Nature Challenges. We're just going to remind folks that the City Nature Challenge this year is April 26th through 29th. That's the observation phase, followed by an identification phase, April 30th to May 5th. There's hundreds of cities taking part around the world. Your city might be taking part. Look up the list and see if you're on it. If not, you can still get out and do your own little BioBlitz event in your community. Basically, it's a, I like to call it an international competitive BioBlitz. So how many species, how many observations, how many people observing can you get out in this time frame? Uh, and the cities are competing among cities to see who can get the highest numbers. You can go to cncphilly.org for more information about what's going on here in Philadelphia. Bartrams, you guys are doing some stuff? Yes, we are putting together a kind of all-day BioBlitz on our big spring fling weekend the last weekend in April. We are going to be facilitating a BioBlitz from about 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Show up earlier if you want. That's probably good for birds. Uh, but during that 10 to 4 range, we'll have um, a kind of collection of different naturalists on hand to direct people, answer questions, uh, tell you where the good bugs are, stuff like that. So it's going to be really cool. I've wanted to organize a BioBlitz for a long time, so I'm very excited about this one. It's a good excuse. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Tony, you're going to be, we're going to, we're, I think those of us in the organizing committee are probably going to be all over the place for those four days doing stuff. Yeah. We've gotten to define our geographic area for the purpose of the competition. And we picked Philadelphia, the city, but also the neighboring counties, which makes sense if you're including mm -hmm. urbanized areas around Philadelphia. But because one count, like a few counties in particular, but we're looking at like Burlington County in Jersey, runs from the Delaware River uh, all the way over to the marshlands on the Atlantic coast of New Jersey, you get a whole lot of habitat range in there that you don't see right in the city. And so Tony's going to try to run our numbers up um, with some trips out there. Yeah. And I'll be in Phil I mean, I'll be in Philadelphia proper for the first the other three first days. two days yeah. and then the last day. Yeah. Yeah. Two, one, the, on the weekdays, I'll be with school groups. Um, I'll be going to a school and taking them out. And then Saturday, um, I'll be at work, but at, at a, in Pennypack Park. And I'll be doing my, it's a big, it's a sheep shearing festival at Fox Sheep Farm slash <laughs> Pennypack Park. Whoa. But my uh, activity will be to take the uh, kids out like every hour on a, on a hike. And um, with, a, you know, magnifying them boxes and and field guides and you know the whole nine plant keys and whatnot i love this stuff so much all right when you're looking at this you're saying okay this is nice it's i mean i think for me the primary target of this kind of thing is the primary goal is getting people engaged in nature that they might not realize is all around them i like seeing what we're doing which is a mix of like our wild spaces but also getting trying to get people to go out just on their front stoops or their sidewalks or their gardens and take pictures and make observations of what's just around them. But the other part is the data actually gets used for stuff. And so without much further ado, let's play the interview with Dr. Leong about one such use of the data. All right, my name is Dr. Misha Leong and I am a research entomologist at the California Academy of Sciences. How did you get into studying entomology in cities? So, you know, like like a lot of people who I think are very interested in um, biodiversity in cities, I myself grew up in a city, and one of the easiest things to really see, especially when you're a little kid, are things that are running around on the floor, like ants and spiders and little earwigs. And so I got interested in those as soon as I could pretty much walk. 
Um, and then, you know, as I, as I got older, I was kind of encouraged by people that entomologists are weird. Don't, don't go down that road or, or nature in, in cities isn't really a real thing. It's all just artificial. So, you know, if you're going to be a biologist, you got to go to the Amazon or, or somewhere cool like that. And so I did pursue, um, other, other research directions for a while, but I kept seeing myself getting drawn back to what, what these cool stories were that were happening in cities. You know, I did my undergrad at UCLA and I would see squirrels running all around campus and it seemed like they were having turf wars with the, with the crows. And, um, when I worked in the botanical gardens, there were, there were plants from Madagascar that were normally pollinated by lemurs, but they were getting pollinated somehow and it turned out the squirrels were doing it. And so I just, I just love those kind of, um, stories in it and it bothered me that that people weren't really taking these these urban nature stories very seriously from a science perspective and so when I um it all all of these things tended to be just anecdotal and and people would move on and so um I'm kind of lucky that when I when I started going to graduate school it sort of coincided when this field of urban ecology really started getting taken really seriously and it's it's exploded over over the time that that I've been working in it too. This might be a detour, but is there a favorite critter of yours in San Francisco? Hmm. Or wherever you're My, I'm assuming you live in the Bay Area, I should Yeah, yes, yeah, so I live in the Bay Area. I live in the East Bay. Um so my favorite <laughs> critter um changes all the time. Um I, I think especially once like the whole world of like insects and spiders is open, it it it, it changes all the time. Um, but because I'm talking to a herpetologist, I will give I'll say my favorite organism of the day is actually a Batrachiceps salamander um, because they are all over in in houses in in Oakland. I know for sure, and in my uh, house that I grew up in, we have like a little fire grate, and there's Always been a salamander. Always been a little bit of in there. Um, sometimes it's a bigger one. Sometimes it's a smaller one. I've, we have no idea how they're getting into this like fireplace grate. But um, my parents still live in the same house since 1976, and there's always there's always someone living in there, and I have no idea how they get there. I, I'm sort of tickled you said that. Um, so there's there's so for those who aren't familiar, this is a genus that's sometimes called slender salamanders, um, uh-huh. and the in in the world of herping. Um, there's like, this is such silly internal stuff, but that there's a little bit of like an East Coast, West Coast thing where the people on the West Coast, they have lots of really cool rattlesnake species and stuff like that, especially Southwest. And then in in the sort of the online forums of this kind of stuff, like starting like, I don't know, 15 years ago, they would have these like, these condescending like remarks about or attitude about the stuff we find on the East Coast. Um, on the East Coast, or so Eastern United States, people really get into turtles, or get into salamanders and stuff like that. Actually, great salamander diversity. And so there's actually, a, it's a silly acronym, but um, lame East Coast herp. So like L-E-C-H would like pop up on like discussion boards. And stuff. Um, <laughs> oh, I and, love like, nerding herps. <laughs> yeah. and so the, the, but, but the plethodontid salamanders, so these are little woodland salamanders, we call them. And there's no, there's nothing that would, that would be more like beneath the dignity of like someone who likes catching rattlesnakes and like a little slender salamander. But for us <laughs> out here, it's like part of our bread and butter, you know? And like, it, and it's also a fun connection because in Philadelphia, 
this is the city where we do the podcast out of, we have redback salamanders, which are, are, are a similar little woodland salamander, same family but different genus. Uh, mm-hmm. so it, it's, a, it's a great pick. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but their they're little, they're little feet are just so adorable. Um, I think a lot of the little salamanders, they, and I'm guessing, you know, so many, so many bugs are like this also, that like you look at them and you, you look at them at a little three-inch salamander and it's kind of like a little brown thing or a little gray thing. Um, you zoom, zoom in on it and like the details of the patterns are beautiful. You know, these sort of marble or speckled or sparkly kinds of patterns. So a good macro photographer can really make them look amazing. Man, you totally threw me off with that wonderful example. All right, so uh, <laughs> next question I have is sort of, is it really just pigeons everywhere? Or, you know, how how distinctive are the places we live from other urban landscapes? So I think um, that it's, it's this idea where, you know, there people live in, in so many different cool environmental habitats around the world. We have people living in in deserts, people living in very cold regions, people living in the tropics. Um, but what people need to live in when they when they create their cities are, auction, are are quite similar. So a lot of times they they create a lot of impervious surface area. There's high concentration of of um, food resources, very similar types of waste, um, and and like a similar sort of climate that's maintained indoors. Plant. So people have 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 similar wants and needs when they create cities, and so it's all these 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 little City habitats are, are quite similar. There's a sort of ecological convergence when there's urbanization, even though they're in these very different environmental gradients all over the world. And um, so this idea that, like, okay, there's ecological homogenization happening as cities get built. What's the biodiversity looking like? And when you look at things very <clears throat> anecdotally, yeah, pigeons are everywhere, um, especially birds because they're so visible in cities, um, or rats. People think of rats. Of, of those being everywhere. And so um, we we wanted to take, and we're not the only ones who've looked at biotic urban homogenization, um, but it's, it's, it's something that there's been growing concern about, like, okay, how, how, how similar are, are our cities getting and are, are we losing that, that species turnover when you move between cities? One of the challenges with urban ecology studies is, um, you know, even though I just talked about how cities are are similar around the world, there's also things that make cities very unique. Like Philadelphia is very unique from San Francisco in a lot of ways too. And I don't know if that's just like personal pride, like oh yeah, my city's the best. Like there's music, but you know the history of how they were developed and and um and the way that that neighborhoods are laid out, and then of course what's the surrounding natural environment um, has an influence about what's going in cities too. Is, has made it difficult to really, um, or has made it challenging for, for urban ecologists to be able to make definitive sweeping statements about what the urban environment is, is really like because oftentimes if you need to, um, you need to, to spend a lot of time doing field work or going really in depth to really understand a system and, you know, one city is, can be quite different in, in a lot of ways from another city. And so, one of the one of the challenges is is getting enough data to be able to generalize across cities, and even when you're if within a single city, you know what what's urban can look quite different. So like, is a suburb of of the San Francisco Bay Area the same as like downtown? Probably not. Um, and so it's just you need all of these these data points, and then multiplying it by the entire all the cities within a region, and then all of the cities within the country, and then on a global scale gets quite overwhelming. And so um, 
when I learned about the City Nature Challenge, I was really excited because it seemed like it was getting um, enough data on a wide variety of cities that would sort of overcome these, these challenges that have limited um, urban ecologists previously. Plus, it was, was helpful because a lot of things that uh, problems I've encountered when I've tried to work in cities is there's a lot of private land. Like, so I, I can, um, you know, document the bees that are flying in on, um, on sidewalk medians and in people's front yards, but I have no idea what kind of bees are, are, or what, what bees are, are doing in, in people's backyards, what kind of plants are available to them. And so one of the nice things with the city nature challenge is because people are collecting their own data, you know, it's giving, um, it's making data available that probably would have caused been all these hurdles of getting permissions to access certain land before. But now people are able to say, Hey, I already went there. This is, this is what I saw. And here's a, here's a photo voucher proof of what's there. Um, so I was, I was excited to see that, you know, since it's been going on for about three years now and um, it had happened in, it's, it's been going on in so many cities that, that it had the potential to overcome some of these challenges that I've seen in urban ecology in the past. So I have a question about this, and I, I know that any any data collection method is going to involve some biases, but um, when you're looking at something like the City Nature Challenge, is there a question of are you seeing things, are people observing plants, animals, fungi, fly molds, whatever, that they just happen to come across based on how humans tend to move through the landscape, and are they are we possibly missing what lives in places that we tend to ignore. Oh yeah, yeah, no, no. Yeah, that's a that's a totally uh, important question, and um, this it's it's a problem that you know even if you're you're talking to professional scientists that they face too because as much as the professional scientist wants to think that they're thinking like the organism, they're they're bound to miss a lot of species. They're, whatever they're collecting is not a perfect representative of what's going on. In the, except in the cases you can make the argument when the like you know a, a cubic foot of of dirt is extracted and brought into a lab and everything has gone over with a fine tooth comb, um, and even then you probably make the argument well if you know if you're extracting the DNA then there's probably like dead organisms that are counting as live organisms or like some some DNA amplifies better than others so you always go down these roads of of, of things getting overrepresented and things getting underrepresented. Um, the way that I see it with the City Nature Challenge, or the way that we approached um, all of these these, these biases, um, and in my mind, one of the biggest challenges was that San Francisco, because we had been doing the City Nature Challenge for um, three years already, and um, we have uh, the the team at the California Academy of Sciences who's who's really cultivated a large group of citizen scientists. We get like. A mag- like an order of magnitude more observations than happen than um, than is found in in a lot of other cities, and so I can't just say, oh, San Francisco clearly has more species than all of these other cities because that's not the true. We don't we don't know that. It's really we just have a lot more observations, and so the way that um, I approached that with our study was to um, to look at ranked lists. So instead of saying we have 100 species and you guys only uh, or like 100, um, yeah, we'll say 100 species and you guys only have 10 species, um, therefore we have a lot more diversity. Instead of asking those kinds of questions, we looked at okay, of of the 100 species that were maybe found in in San Francisco, what were the the five most observed species, and then what were the five most observed species in in the city that that might have found less things, because 
the assumption that, that we're using is that human biases tend to be somewhat universal. And so, you know, even though birds tend to be observed a lot more than insects, as an entomologist, I know that insects are way more abundant than birds. So I, I broke things down by taxa group and made ranked comparisons and, and compared compositions rather than looking at um, overall sort of makeup, if that makes any sense. It does. Thank you. Now I'm curious. So what did you find? Yeah, I don't want to say the good news or the bad news because that's implying <laughs> that I wanted it to be one way or the other. Value judgment. Just let's see. But it's uh, biotic homogenization is not um, as much of a problem as as I think um, I was initially concerned with, and I think part of the reason is because of the limitations in 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 species diversity knowledge that we really have. So, you know, even though we say, oh, there's so many pigeons, there's so many rats that are all over the place, we forget that those are only just two of, of um, you know, hundreds of species that might be observed in a given city. And so um, even though there are um, definitely uh, species that are found in, a, in across many cities, so in, in this particular study, we focused on um, 14 cities in the City Nature Challenge. And so um, we, we considered something to be widespread if it was found in over half of, of, of those 14 cities. And so even though the really widespread species made up a very small um, minority of the overall species that were found, so that's great because there's a lot of um, regional diversity that's finding its way in, into cities. I can't necessarily say that they're finding in their way into cities and thriving, but some certainly are. Um, one of the things that, that was like a light bulb going off in my head when I was um, doing my graduate school work was um, I was working on, on California native bees, and I was working in a in, in Alameda, which is like a lot of landfill. There's like – so any natural area that's there is kind of created natural area. Um, and bees would have had to fly from – a few miles away in order to to be found in Alameda. And that was like, oh, no, because I'm finding a lot of bees here, and not just honeybees, California native bees. That means that they've um, they've been living in Alameda for generations, probably. They're um, they're making their nests there. They're they're foraging and 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 they're um, providing for their their offspring within within Alameda. And so they're urban resident bees. There's a lot of a lot of surrounding biodiversity is, is coming into cities, um, so that that's good. That cities aren't completely excluding what's um, what's local to the region, but then the sort of flip side to that is those widespread species, even though they're a minority in terms of of species lists, there's there's a lot fewer of them um, in terms of proportion of observations they made up a disproportionately large um, number of the observations. So let me see what, I don't remember what the actual numbers were, but if um, if these really widespread species were only 1% of the species diversity, they made up closer to 20% of the total observations. So, um, you know, it's hard to say whether or not they're making up a larger number of observations because people recognize them and, and they're able to ID them easier. Or if they really are starting to um, sort of shift the the population, so that's something that I think requires more more investigation. And the other flip side thing is, you know, urban or the the local natural biodiversity is finding its way into cities, but we also have to um, make sure that all of these 
more city associated widespread species aren't all finding their way out into the surrounding natural areas. Oh, yeah. I think it's really interesting because, like, in the in the scientific literature, like, you know, you see people really trying to take a, uh, like, a neutral sort of stance, but then conservation obviously plays a very huge role in, and, and, and a, this, this idea about, like, oh, you know, we have to, you know, sort of starting to sort of get into, like, the, the, the topic of my paper is, like, this idea of biotic homogenization originally came from, like, the conservation biologists being concerned about how um, this could lead to um, a lack of, of, of species diversity if city, city biodiversity was starting to become similar all around the world. But at the same time, you, you see different perspectives sort of coming from different fields. So, like, when, you, when you're talking about urban ecology, you get these these – this this meeting of several different sort of academic disciplines of um, you know geographers and landscape ecologists who are um, who are trying to say oh yeah let's let's try to like let's try to increase biodiversity in cities whereas you also have people who are like urban entomologists whose 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 goal has been let's try to um, make make cities healthy places for people to live. By by getting rid of things like bed bugs and um, and things that cause cause disease, and so it's it's been an interesting mix of 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 of, of what are our goals with biodiversity in cities. It was great talking to you, Billy. It's, it's always really interesting and fun for me to talk to other people who are excited about urban nature. We're pouring ourselves another drink. Tony and I have been, I don't say this often, we've been birding all day. Yeah. Tony says that often, I don't. We started off the day at a great urban, which a place was also taking part in the nature challenge, the John Hines National Wildlife Refuge. We were looking at birds there, saw a saw-wet owl, mm-hmm. dabbling ducks, and some shallow were preferring diving ducks here and there, right? Yeah, a couple. Yeah, yep. Um, and and then, a grebe, a horned grebe. Horned grebe. Mm, I love a grebe. Um, and then we hit the road to drive across New Jersey to uh, Barnegat Light State yeah. Park. Is that the right mm. way to say it? Okay. Mm. It's a lighthouse um, with some, some dune habitat. Uh, and a massive jetty. And so if you aren't familiar with the east coast of the United States, south of New England is all sandy coastal plain. There's, there's not much rocky coastline or, or basically none at all it's all sandy beaches and this duck is breeds in well, which duck are we talking about harlequin ducks sorry yeah. Har- main targets harlequin ducks and they breed in fast flow on fast flowing rivers in um from iceland to northeast canada and there's population in the rocky mountains into alaska and then they winter on rocky coasts uh, on the east coast before they built jetties they wouldn't be found south of of new england and there's a, a a population on this one jetty in Jersey. They they visit a couple of the other jetties, but I think this is the biggest jetty in New Jersey, and it has a, it's the only reliable spot in Jersey to see harlequin ducks, and they are absolutely gorgeous birds. It's one of the kind of things where you assume it must be tropical because it's so hot, but it is in fact. Northern, have you seen these before? I have seen those. Okay. I'm just looking at them thinking, everybody's been so pumped about those mandarin ducks. You, we have these beautiful people right here. Yeah, and speaking of mandarin ducks, we have wood duck, which is our congener. Oh, yeah. Right? It's a gorgeous duck. Yeah, it's yeah. the same. It's, you know, it's his closest relative, 
And I think just as beautiful, just because it doesn't have the one little flap of feathers on on its side that the Mandarin duck and has. Mandarin ducks are released captives anyway. Yeah. Their escapes. They're not. Sorry, they're not as special as people are making them out to be. So one time, me and Josh Robeson, and the, where we're, our new studio is is in the the new Robeson Library, where I keep my books in my house, my old uh, house before I moved in with Angie. Um, we called it the Robeson Library because my buddy Josh. I had four pieces of his, four or five pieces of his artwork in that room. Oh, yeah. And so we always called it the Robeson Library. But I was out with Josh, and our goal for the day was to see the th- North America's three most beautiful ducks. Oh. Wood duck, hood merganser, and harlequin duck. And so we go to, to Brigantine, a.k.a. Forsyth National Wildlife Refuge, and we got wood duck and hood merganser. This is also a coastal New Jersey. Yeah. yeah. And then... Uh, only like 45 minutes from there is Barnegat Light. So we go to Barnegat Light to get the Harlequin duck. And we're working out in the jetty. And we see a snowy owl across the jetty at Island Beach State Park, which is across the inlet. And we decided to abandon our... You could see it from right there. Mm-hmm. So we decided to... I mean, it just looked like a white... We knew it was a snowy owl. And we could tell a snowy owl, but it was just a white speck that would move. And so we decided to abandon the Harlequin duck chase to go all the way around and hike out to get a better look at the house. Because this is, it's all the way around because you're on barrier islands where yeah. you don't, you have to sort of backtrack down the island, back to the mainland, back up and around to get to the, yeah. Yeah, and we failed. <laughs> we didn't get the Harlequin duck, nor did we get the owl. Although I bet you if we actually decided, I don't know why, I mean, you can usually see the, I bet you can see the Harlequin ducks from across the jetty. Uh, maybe we didn't even look. We were so dejected from missing the owl. But I'm sorry. It's a, but this fits in because this is talking. This is you know We're talking about this. One yeah, this there. is a a uh, anthropomorphic, anthropogenic. <laughs> We're not giving human qualities to this. Well, <laughs> uh, it's an anthropomorphic. Um, Genic. Yeah, anthropogenic. <laughs> and please don't edit that out. That's that's gold. Anthropogenic um, environment. Right. It's these these ducks have extended their range south because of. Human intervention. We put a, we put a rocky coastline right there for them to enjoy. Yeah, yeah, and it's and you see a, a bunch of other um, sea ducks. Uh, I I had a lot of fun with the black scoters. Yeah, which are these black ducks with these sort of light orange uh, bills. They give yeah. a nice contrast, and so I thought they were beautiful. And we saw a couple of scoters. One distant look at a white winged scoter, which is funny if you go to New England, it's often the more, most common one. But down our way, black scoter is the most common one, and surf scoter is second. A lot of loons. Yeah, both species of loon on the East Coast. Um, Grebes. And uh, lots of red-breasted mergansers, long-tailed ducks, uh, great cormorants. But do we see grebes or not? Am I... No, we no, saw that on Heinz. Okay. Uh, you can't often see them there. We looked in the bay. So two grebes. species of loon. Yes. Um, and I got a kick out of the songbirds. We saw a horned lark, which was my first time I've ever seen one of those. Um, and then we saw this this like sort of very faded looking little sparrow, which was the Ipswich subspecies of Savannah sparrow, which only breeds on like this one little Sable island. island off of Nova Scotia. Yeah, um, but you, you look at it, and, oh, it's a little sparrow, but like it's a very special sparrow. But it's one of those things where it's like it's like it's like looking at a um, Savannah sparrow through like wax paper. Yeah, it has this like frosty. Appearance and the and the markings are really fine and it's a very beautiful, elegant little. I agree. Beautiful bird. Uh, but after all those that that bird diversity, let's go back to the the urban biodiversity topic. The part I like to play with is 
the question of, I mean, we're sitting here, three people who are in some role of environmental education in the city. I'm an amateur at it. I do it with, with like walks for looking for herps and stuff like that. I write about it for Grid. We do this podcast. Tony does this for a living. LJ. It's definitely part of my part of work job. as yeah. a communications person. So yeah. then when you're out there, like, what do we focus on? Like, how much do we, like, have fun with the comments, like, what the crows are doing and what the pigeons are doing and what the, my favorites, the chimney swifts are doing, even though you can see them all over the place, versus stumbling on finding the orange crown warblers, which are just here and there, but part of sort of the native biodiversity that makes its way into the city. Often easy to hook people into, like, something that's flashier or more charismatic, but, you know, it's also... There's a lot of merit in looking at the small things. We were talking about the biodiversity. Is, it comes in small packages, really. Yeah. That in a way, there's a bias that we bring when we say, oh, it's raccoons everywhere, it's pigeons everywhere, because we're looking at bigger, more obvious animals. When, when you get down to the level of your parasitic wasps and your, all your wasps, all your bees, um, all your... All your arthropods, really. All your arthropods. Um, you actually, that's where you see a lot of the native biodiversity come into the city. And you know, often, um, generally I host children in my own park. That's how I prefer it. That's where we do our best work. But occasionally I get asked to go to a school or to a recreation center. And, and even when I do that, I much prefer to go outside if I can. And often the only outdoor space because you know philadelphia is is we're the densest in terms of housing where we have the most highest percentage of attached housing so we're, we're we even though we have a very large park system um the one of the largest parks in the city in the world we don't have a large yard system we don't have a large <laughs> yard system and often ghouls are just too far to be practical in the course of like one class to get to a park yeah so the nearest thing might be a a water department um, like bioswale because we have this incredible problem with uh, um, stormwater because of so much impervious surface. So, and we have an old sewer system to deal with it. So we have to, um, the, city, the city is investing billions of dollars. Or, a whole yeah, lot of money. Yeah, let's see, yeah a whole lot of money um, into uh, green infrastructure. So often the nearest spot to a school or a rec center would be like a little rain garden. And what's there? Arthropods, yes. right? So there's 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 always a pill bug under a, a rock or a log, or there's always like cucumber beetles or lady bugs or um, you know or bees mm-hmm. or, um, for the kids to look at. And that's really, this is what I'm thinking of the candy striped sharpshooter leaf hopper mm-hmm. little thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. They're gorgeous. Yes. Yeah. The size of a grain of rice, but they're mm-hmm. like a like a grain of rice drawn by a kindergartner. You know. Yeah. Like, and. Like, you guys, do you still do moth nights? Yes, we do do moth nights. And so this is a sort of softball question, but, like, when you have a moth night, can you identify all the species on the sheet that you've you've lured in? I can't, personally. Uh, We are able to identify many of them, but there's stuff that shows up, and it's always exciting to not be totally sure what everything is that's on there. You get plenty of species, and you'd be very surprised to see what comes to a sheet in a public park in the middle of the night. Not being paid by the California Academy of Sciences to say this, but 
With iNatural, it's one of the fun things about an app like that is you don't actually have to ID everything. Mm -hmm. The app helps you, and then there's the sort of crowdsourcing aspect of it. It's hard to accept that I'll never know all the beetle species in Philadelphia, probably, let alone the moths, let alone the, the tiny little wasps that might yeah. I might just think are specks of dust floating by. Mm -hmm. um, and so knowing that you have sort of a, an algorithm and a bunch of people to help you out, like I think opens up that world of like small-scale biodiversity in a, a fun way. Yeah, I would say um, you had asked originally like where to start, where we like to start with um, public education with yeah. creatures. Um, and I would say I really like to start, if the choice is between the flashy or something less flashy, I would always go with the familiar. And sometimes the familiar is not the flashy thing. Okay. And it's it's squirrels or it's... Squirrels the, are great, man. The pill bugs, yeah. yeah. Or it's, um, you know, whatever thing that you can go find. I like, when I do insect education, I like to do um, praying mantises because they're very cool. But also it's something that most kids would be able to find somewhere in the city. I see them all over the place. Yeah. yeah. They're incredible. And so stuff like that where you can kind of break it down to like, this is a thing you've seen. I can tell you about it. And then also, especially with kids, but everybody likes to have a fact that they can throw at somebody, um, <laughs> giving people like a little bit more information that they can I have a seven-year-old who loves to be like, well, actually. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So with, with praying mantids, it's great because you can say, oh, this is um, a green mantis. Here's another green mantis but I can tell you which one of these is invasive and which one of these is native by the length of its wings. Yeah. And you too can get more excited when you see the Carolina mantis than when you see the Chinese mantis from this point forward. And yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's always... And, and I liked what um, Dr. Leung said in the interview um, about her interest in insects starting because they were everywhere. Yeah. And I think that from an environmental education standpoint and with an attempt to promote environmental literacy it's advantageous to work with something that can be found anywhere you look so yeah. with with insects and then with plants too that's they're great tools for that i don't know i thought it was interesting the paper seemed to reflect a lot of general understanding about biodiversity that we tend to see um a smaller group of species in more highly urbanized places and that group is made up more of a select few species which tend to be not native yeah. than in less developed areas or even if not native are, are present in a lot of different cities so right. take a, like american crow is an example right. of that. yeah yeah um so that was all fascinating something that made me wonder though is um, especially because we tend to have these uh highly cosmopolitan invasive species or non-native species um, if when you go to the cities in their native range, do you kind of see an inversion of that situation? The reason that I thought about this specifically, I was recently in Germany and, um, I went mostly to museums the whole time I was in Germany and, uh, the zoological museum for the University of Hamburg had a display about the European starling, which apparently is disappearing at a drastic rate in Germany. Oh. But here, 
you they're not disappearing no you can't <laughs> like swing a stick without hitting a starling I don't, this paper didn't address that and it wasn't within the scope but that's yeah. something i wonder is is do we see are there north american native species that have become invasive in other places i'm sure there are oh totally yes uh, black cherries something that comes to mind and i think in europe um uh what else uh, black locust mm. um we did a it was a few years ago we did an episode about um, what happens after, like, sort of urban nature after a war. Oh. And so we looked at some study of post-World War II uh, English, but especially German cities, mm-hmm. and the study of what happens in the ruins after a war. And apparently black locusts really took over, I don't know, like, into a monoculture, but, like, took over as, like, a common urban species in mm-hmm. a lot of German cities um, after World War II, where they were able to colonize... Um, bombed out areas really easily. Mm-hmm. Um, just a couple of examples. Yeah. yeah, I would say. Oh, gray squirrels in the UK also. Yes, that's very true. Just if you happen to be in Germany, definitely hit up their zoological museums and cultural institutions. The aquarium in Berlin was one of the coolest places I've oh, been yeah. in my entire life. And what just, was cool about it? Oh, I mean, it was perfect. It was just done very well. Um, the whole first floor was representations of like such a wide variety of aquatic habitats, including places like inland lakes, yeah. like the depths of an inland lake in Africa, like the kind of chick- cichlid. Oh, I don't know how to pronounce it. Cichlid. Yeah, yeah, cichlid. Thank you. The kind of cichlids that you would find. Chicklets are gum. Chicklets yeah. are gum. Yeah, yeah. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Stuff like that. But then the second floor was all um, reptiles. Uh, and yeah. these beautifully planted out uh, displays that were themselves, just botanically speaking, a work of art. Uh, and then the third floor was amphibians, but also insects. The big thing that struck me about the zoological institutions in Germany was that there were always a ton of insects and information about insects. Yeah. And informing the public about the importance of insects, the systems that they function within, which... Think is just not really a thing that we do here no, and i not. sure yeah. wish we would don't go to the aquarium in paris it's not worth it <laughs> it's more expensive than the german aquariums and the vibe overall is like if you had to design a public high school for fish um with that go check out your local aquarium let us know what you think of it and take your tablet phone camera whatever get outside and observe some local biodiversity not just april 26th or 29th but all the year please rate us highly on your podcast listening app of choice please get in touch with us at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com tweet at us at urbanwildlifecast find us on facebook and find us on patreon if you'd like to chip in always appreciate it if you're in philadelphia go to bartram's garden yeah it's right off the 36 trolley it's free to visit you have to pay if you want to go inside the house on a guided tour but you don't have to go inside the house there's so much else to do um also why not follow Bartram's Garden on social media. We're at Bartram's Garden on Instagram and Twitter and uh, Bartram's Garden on Facebook. If we can hit 10,000 followers on Instagram, we can finally start putting links in our stories and that's a goal. So <laughs> Awesome. We want to help you in that, in that goal. Well, I want to thank LJ for coming out tonight. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. And uh, we want to thank Misha Leong for the interview as well. Uh, thanks for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.